0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right, yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. more humor to help with
1: any of that post-election stress here you go
0: i had the weirdest weirdest dream last night remember that guy who used to host the apprentice (laughs) i dreamed we elected him president (laughs) the big story is that this morning you finally woke up from a coma well, you might want to go back. We put our eight-month-old son to bed, and I was holding him, and I said to him, "When you wake up tomorrow morning, we might have our first female president." And then, when we came home around midnight, I uh, went into his room, uh, shook his crib until he woke up, and screamed, "We have to get out of here!" <laughs> I watched news coverage all night last night and it was especially interesting to watch the change in tone as the night progressed. They started out upbeat, but as the evening went on and the results came in was every anchor looked like a child slowly realizing that no one was showing up to his birthday party.
2: Now, today, Americans have the right to
3: feel happy, angry, pessimistic, optimistic. But everybody should feel grateful that we get to vote and if we don't get our way, We have the chance to try again. It is a beautiful thing. President Trump. President Trump. President Trump. President Trump.
0: President Trump. President Trump. President Trump. President Trump. President Trump.
3: Just before we start the show, I'd like to remind you, good listener, that Mid Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network. A series of podcasts put together by independent podcasters from all around the globe. Now this month it's the History of Islam which seems like a somewhat prescient podcast for me to recommend that you listen to considering that there has been a whole swathe of anti-Islamic demonization in the American political system and throughout the Western world. If you want to learn more about how this religion exploded from the Arabian Peninsula, go over to the PodcastNetwork.com website or you can go to iTunes or a podcatcher of your choice. When I started Mid-Atlantic two years ago, the point was to compare and contrast US politics with British pure and simple. Yes, the shows would be left-leaning, as I am, but I would try and understand the other side and not to demonise them as the enemy. To help me in this quest I would speak to clever and articulate people who would help me to understand what was happening politically and the tone would always be respectful underlying that would be the values that I hold dear, equality for all, that everyone should have the opportunity to thrive regardless of race, class, sexuality and where they happen to be born. You can call me politically correct, i just call it being correct. My father always said never judge someone until you've understood things from their point of view and I still hold that maxim very dear. Implied in it however is that others should at least try and understand your position too. They need not agree with your conclusions of why you believe what you do, but they should at least respect you and your position. It's hard in the current political climate since Brexit and the election of Trump to believe that this common decency is being handed to immigrants, people of colour and to other marginalised peoples. The Brexit vote, for example, inherited the rise of racist attacks in London. A Polish servicemen's club was graffitied within hours of the leave vote. These old gentlemen had fought for the Royal Air Force against Hitler and fascism only to witness its rise in their twilight years. In America, a land I admire, groups have been labelled as rapists living in squalor and calls for walls around the country have been extended metaphorically into American communities, its city versus rural, elites and deplorables as the country self-segregates. Well folks, I'm angry. I'm angry that the wealth gap is rising throughout the Western world and that the poorest are being demonised. The champion of the deplorable shouldn't be someone who has benefited from globalisation by getting his ties manufactured in Mexico and not Milwaukee. From here on in I promise in my own small way to try and counter the alt-right but let's call it what it is, the resurgent fascist rise. Are all Trump voters fascist and racists? Absolutely not. Were all Brexiteers motivated by a hatred of immigrants? No. But lurking underneath both of these events. Are a real bunch of natty deplorables who seek to turn the clock back to 1930s. When they talk about differences between people, the sexes, and races, and listen to them carefully and reject what they say. When they talk about their country in exclusive terms, beware and repudiate them. Call me liberal, call me progressive, call me worse if you like. What I am is right, and Mid Atlantic will be much more strident from here on in in calling out bigotry, xenophobia, and bullshit whenever it rears its ugly head. Doug Levy has covered healthcare and health policy in Washington for most of the 1990s and now is a freelance journalist and communications consultant. In this election, he stepped into an advocacy role campaigning for Hillary Clinton in those battings of liberalism, New York and San Francisco. Doug, have you managed to sleep much in the last six days? I, I would say it's been sleep but not restful at all. Mm. you you, and half the planet um, I've really found your thought pieces on Facebook live um, since the election uh, not only kind of interesting but also thought provoking simply for people that have been catching up with you uh, through Facebook what now for the Democratic Party?
2: Well, I think there's got to be you know a period of mourning and hand wringing which is underway and I hope it doesn't go that much longer because the Trump administration is being formed and we need to form the loyal opposition and that's going to take a lot of work because that's not a role that Democrats have historically done very well
3: You know Doug I I, I kind of disagree with you a little bit there the one thing which has really been large for me since the election of Obama is that the Republicans whether it's in Senate or in Congress have absolutely said no at any turn to any form of compromise, whereas traditionally the Democrats have much more reached across the aisle and tried to come up with compromises. You know, it's the Republicans that traditionally have said, well, not necessarily traditionally, at least in the last eight years, that have said, no, you know, this there is, there is a definite line in the sand. We are not going to compromise. We are ideologically pure.
2: That's true. And I would argue that that's not particularly effective either. Because although the Republicans have been swept into power, it's only been on the coattails of Trump. Um, The fact is that uh, Paul Ryan, the uh, Speaker of the House, and Mitch McConnell, the uh, majority leader in the Senate, um, do not begin the new term with a whole lot of power, in large part because they offended a lot of their base with that Opposition too. I mean, yes, the Republicans did not want the Obama agenda to proceed. However The people in this election Spoke loud and clear that they want a Washington that functions and You can't say that those people have been part of a functional federal government so Trump has unprecedented power to change the way that everything is done in Washington. Um, And just as that's energized the right, that scares the Dickens out of the left. And we have to somehow catch our breath enough so that we are organized in our opposition so that we're able to work through the existing government channels, speak our voices,
3: bring in allies. What, what channels are left? If the Republicans are in control of the presidency, the Senate, and Congress, what is left? And soon to be the Supreme Court.
2: Well, right. I mean, that's going to be the first battle because uh, you know there is an existing vacancy on the Supreme Court. And you know, as a, as a history student, as somebody who has lived in Washington, cared about the way the government operates for my entire life, the idea that President Obama was not able to name a Supreme Court justice it just offends me deeply. And that's, I think, one of the main things that really pushed me to, you know, become an unabashed partisan here, because, you know, this is not the way the U.S. government was supposed to function. Um, but it's what happened. So here we are. Um, Trump will name somebody to the Supreme Court, and it will be very difficult for the Democrats to block whoever he selects, and based on the people that he's had around him up till now and the people that he's naming so far to his transition team, um, I have fairly low expectations for the caliber of that person. So that's that's going to be a very big problem, and that's, I think, going to be a, a first test of the opposition. And I think part of what has to happen there is that uh, the Democrats have to really have their act together. The other thing is we've got to be able to build our own coalition there's got to be i don't know whether it's not the evangelicals but there's got to be some group of people on the republican side who are
3: concerned as well well surely the the people who of which you kind of intimate are um your soft republicans people who uh, who see themselves naturally as independents but are uh, republican leaning Independence. Because the surprising thing, or let's say the shocking thing for me about this election, is that through all of Trump's very obvious flaws, people voted in, for him in spite of those. And actually, he got a very normal, traditional Republican turnout. So surely it's those people in the middle ground who lean slightly right. It's where the Democrats need to um, reach out to. And 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 really, does the election of Trump say that the middle ground of U.S. politics is dead? Because you have Trump, this we haven't had a, a more right-leaning um, candidate for presidency, and then we almost had on the Democratic side somebody who, in in American terms, is unprecedented by calling themselves a Democratic socialist. So, what does it say about the middle of American politics?
2: I think the middle's been hurting forever. Um, you know. It's, I think the last middle candidate we had was Bill Clinton. Clinton was certainly toward the right end of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, and I think that's one of the reasons why he was so successful, um, both at getting into the White House in the first place and implementing quite a few policies, and you know, Bill Clinton made some pretty major stumbles in his first few months in office, but he recovered from them in large part because he had been able to work with people from both parties. Nobody has even tried doing that uh, in the last 12 years, and that's sad. Um, the fact is that, that Trump is going to have to at least nominally reach out to the other side. We'll see. I'm, I'm actually I'm, I'm concerned because of the people that he's named to his inside circle. Uh, you know, these are not... Moderates. These are actually people that I think some people some would describe as frightening, and they're also not people with a history of working with uh, with politics, with with getting deals done.
3: You you say that the um, that Trump is going to have to reach out, and and he did say after his victory that he was going to be. Uh, a president for all Americans. He did. He did mutter that at some point. But surely, if the Republicans have the hands on the levers of all um, departments of, of of the government, it doesn't matter.
2: That's going to remain to be seen. You know, we still have a
3: complicated
2: system, and there's lots of arcane parliamentary rules. And if the Democrats play their cards correctly they will at least be able to use the system to shine the light on what the Trump administration is trying to do and I think that's going to be really important so for example if there's a Supreme Court nominee there will be hearings Uh, it would be mind-boggling if the Republicans would try to bypass those hearings and this has been a tradition for as long as the United States has been around, um, you know, even the minority party gets to do some degree of grandstanding and posturing. And I think that's where the Democrats have to be really strategic and smart with how they use that small window when they will be in the spotlight. Um, that's one of the things they need to do to show leadership. Even if the majority party is either not leading or leading in a way that is...
3: So obviously the era of the Clintons is over. Um, Who next is going to be the leader of the Democratic Party? Where does the Democratic Party go next? And what happens to all those uh, Bernie supporters? Great question. I think there's a couple of things that are happening that are are fascinating
2: in a lot of ways. Um, For one thing, you, you might expect that the failed candidate would continue playing a role. I'm not sure how feasible that's going to be. Um, President Obama himself, I think nominally, actually more than nominally, I think I think we need the leadership of President Obama right now to kind of guide the Democrats into the next phase. And in fact, he, he has already been reaching out to some key people and I, I believe he's even going to be um, speaking to some of the folks that worked on the campaign, uh, not just the Clinton campaign, but across the the, the many offices that were up on the ballot in different states, he's he's trying to make sure that the Democrats do stay together. I think there's upheaval, as there should be, within the Democratic National Committee, Um, and I I expect that that we're going to start seeing a lot more from folks like Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts who... Um, during the campaign was one of the most, one of the strongest voices um, to counter Donald Trump's on substance of issues. Elizabeth Warren is is brilliant and and great communicator. She is looked at as a leader. Uh, She appeals to many of the same supporters that Sanders did. And I think she could be a very strong voice for the opposition. I look forward to
3: that actually. can some can Elizabeth Warren or somebody with her message actually go and speak to small town America? It seems to me, if anything, this the election of Trump is actually the victory of small town and rural America over the coastal metropolitan America. Is she really the right person? to go and bang the drum for a more lefty economic populist and social inclusive America. That's, that is a great point. And I, and I
2: actually think you're, you're right. Um,
3: uh, you know, she is, you
2: know, the Boston Harvard Absolutely. liberal elite, And, um, you know, many of us do find that appealing, but, um, you know, I spent, I spent a couple of days with somebody who was, uh, not a supporter of the democratic candidate. um, From a rural part of California. And, you know, it was very clear to me that um, it almost didn't matter what the messages from the Democratic Party were. They weren't even being listened to. And it also almost didn't matter what Trump said. It was merely that he wasn't part of the liberal elite. So the Democrats absolutely have to do a much better job of reaching out to the large number of Americans who don't live in the big cities. Uh, I mean, if you look at the map, it's kind of depressing to see that the uh, you know the Clinton got the coasts and little tiny pockets between the coasts. Um, that says something. And it says that the Democrats have failed to reach those people. Um, that's going to take something that we haven't figured out yet. I don't think the Democrats have a really strong leader who has that connection to the rural population. I would have hoped somebody like Tim Kaine might have been that person, uh,
3: given that he was
2: governor of a state that has a lot of agriculture and and, large rural population, but it didn't work.
3: Doug, so one of the things which I've really wanted to do with uh, with this episode is to look forward to the next uh, two or four years, but you know it'd be remiss of me if I didn't, you know, ask you um, to at least pull on some of the stories, some of the anecdotes which you which you encountered whilst campaigning for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, you you campaigned in Nevada. Do you have any kind of special stories or anecdotes which kind of illuminate or shine some light, which is fundamentally the same thing, on exactly the divisions, the inherent divisions that American. Society actually has at the moment.
2: I mean, we know that for whatever reason, lots of people did not like Hillary Clinton, and you know, we could argue about that you know for for hours. But the fact is, I think it has much to do with her being a Democrat. And I I, I am positive that there were some people that we encountered when we were going door to door, who it didn't matter who we were campaigning for, if we were campaigning for a Democrat, they weren't even interested in listening. And I found the same thing in in prior encounters in, 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 in Nevada. Um, you, know, you, have, you have a lot of hardworking people. They, um, they have conservative backgrounds. Many of them are former military. And you know, their orientation is toward the Republicans. The Democrats have got to find someone, hopefully many people, who have credibility with that sector, because that's who voted for Trump and put him into power. And if we don't work with more people like that, and understand their pain, understand their concerns, and find them solutions, the Democrats will never be able to do anything, let alone get back into power.
3: Do we do the do the Democrats need to understand the pain, the concerns, the issues of white, rural, suburban America over the pain, the issues of minorities in America.
2: One of the things that frustrated me enormously throughout the whole campaign cycle was the inability of the people in the rural areas to pause long enough to listen to folks like me So that we could help them understand how the concerns that they had in their rural communities in many, I might even say most cases, were very much the same as people in the cities. Economic concerns, education, we we need more economic opportunity. We need better access to education. We need people to get health care. People have different ideas on how to solve those problems, but the concerns are the same. We're all trying to make better lives for ourselves and our neighbors.
3: We've got to talk about that together. Maybe we've got to the root of the issue here is that white suburban Americans are Americans, and Latino Americans are hyphenated Americans. They have to qualify their Americanness. by by that hyphen or African Americans and the truth of the matter is is that for a lot, for for a a significant proportion of Americans they see other people as not them they've opted in somehow to be American but they're not really American so their issues and their concerns are not theirs I think that's true to the
2: extent that they've never met each other and maybe this is me being a Pollyanna overly optimistic person but you know everybody thinks that Congress is corrupt but everybody loves their own Congress person I think we potentially have the same thing you know if you've got a Latino family in your neighborhood everybody loves them but as a group there may be some distance and I think you know there has to be. I mean, how can you be an American and unwelcoming to other people who are trying to do the same thing you're doing, raise their family and live but, a better life? But surely life the for the, the
3: message the, the message of Trump was that they're not trying to do the same thing because Mexico's sending over its worst. It's sending over its rapists and bad hombres and and, and gangbangers. And if you truly believe that. Well then it, go, it goes to reinforce your, your your view, your world view, sorry, your American-centric well, view that these people the, are the, other, they are different. The only reason that Trump was
2: able to get that false claim to take root is that we have so many people that mm-hmm. don't know otherwise. You know, they, they live in communities where there's a relatively small minority population. Mm-hmm. And somehow... We have to bridge those gaps. I mean, I, I'm fortunate. I live in a neighborhood that is quite diverse, and that's that's something I value. Now, I'm not going to tell somebody who wants to live in an enclave that they shouldn't, but I do think that as Americans, you know, we have this thing called the Constitution, where you know everybody's created equal, and and there's there's no no gap in the rights to one group over another. I think we need to help educate people about what that actually means and meet your neighbors more.
3: Surely, it's not meeting our neighbors more; it's meeting people from communities which are not like ours more. Because the t- the truth of the matter is is that America is self segregating, isn't it? You know, if you look at the d- the demographics that since the nineteen sixties, um, there is no way now, or let's see, even since the nineteen eighties. So Ronald Reagan could win all the states in 1984 minus one. That's kind of impossible now because America is so culturally divided. Uh, So it's not a case of meeting our neighbours. It's meeting people from communities that do not look, do not sound like us.
2: That's correct, although I think my definition of neighbour may be a little bit different. Um, I think of it less geographically and more intellectually. So... Yeah, you know, we have this beautiful thing called the internet, and you know, you can have affinity groups. Uh, that, you know, I mean, I've got friends in places I don't even know where they live, and you know, I find people who think like me. We need to help people realize that there are folks who think like them,
3: who may not look like them. Surely, what we need to do as progressives is to reach out to our more conservative brothers, and actually say, I want to have a dialogue with you. You don't think like me, I don't think like you, but I want to listen to you. But also, I would like you to listen to me also. Right. And and it's that
2: two-way exchange that we have failed at. Um, I mean, I, I have spent quite a bit of time over the last six months or more listening, trying to listen as much as I could to people who disagree with me. And that's that I benefit from that greatly and hopefully they do too. Um, you know, If somebody has very very strong feelings about certain issues that are different from mine, the more I understand about why they feel that way, the better off we all are at finding a solution that makes everybody happy. It's, it shouldn't be a you, know, you win, I lose equation on every issue. We have to have those two-way conversations and, and the Democrats have done a very bad job of that. Uh, I don't think the Republicans have done a great job of it either, but That's our mission for the next four years. We've got to be listening to each other.
3: Just like I said to my previous speaker, um, I'm not going to allow you to sign off on on a depressive note, me being a progressive and you being a progressive. So fill me with some form of hope that the next two or four years um, there's going to be um, somewhere where people who are progressive, who believe in inclusive politics, actually will be able to thrive and, and have some hope.
2: I think there's a lot to be hopeful of. I actually – earlier this morning I ran into somebody who was telling me about some efforts to organize here in New York. Um, There were immediately – not just the protests in the streets in San Francisco, but there was a lot of effort already put into finding ways to coalesce the energy that's emerged. I mean, of course, we would have liked it to have been energized before, but hey, we're here. So um, there are groups of lawyers – There are groups of social activists, there are groups of politicians, there's lots of little pockets, and I'm hoping that they're going to coalesce in enough of an organized way that come January 20th, when we have President Trump, we will have clear messages and clear voices, we will be watching, and we will be guiding our colleagues and neighbors into the appropriate kind of activism for the next two and four years so that in the next elections, we have a better outcome. And in in between, we're going to be watching. So if it means going to court to block things, we'll do it.
3: Doug Levy, thank you for joining us on Mid-Atlantic. And keep the faith, brother. Thank you. Great talking to you. Journalist and commentator Sonny Hundal is the editor of Politico Scrapbook, a columnist for the Hindustan Times who writes about current affairs, identity and lefty political goings-on. Are you still in shock?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely still in shock. Uh, Still trying to deal with what's going on, still trying to make sense of it, looking at the data, seeing what people are saying. Yeah, I mean, difficult to process, isn't it? Um,
3: I think if we learn anything, it's that data um, is about as predictable as, as seaweed, you know, projecting the weather. Um, yeah. I think the stock of 538 has gone down considerably um, since the election of Trump. But what does the election of Trump mean to the left in the UK?
4: For a start, what people will do is, you know, they will say this this election of Trump, you know, justifies what I've been saying for years. And you will get this sentiment expressed across the board on the left and the right people saying, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who simply use any event to justify what they've been saying. And I think we have to stop when something big and unexpected like this happens and think, look, you know, were some of my assumptions wrong? I fear that a lot of people on the left will simply say, no, none of my assumptions were wrong. You know, I was right to say that, um, you know, Trump um, could get elected because Bernie Sanders was the right person or that we're not doing this. We're not doing that. Neoliberalism you know, is dead, etc., etc. Um, and I think we have to be careful because what happened in America, um, you know, different narratives will come out over the next few weeks, but we have to learn from it and be careful about um, not inserting our previously held assumptions into the data because or into whatever comes out, because then you're not really listening. All you're doing is just repeating what you've already said. Uh, and I have a bad feeling that a lot of people on the left will just simply ignore the, ignore what's coming out and just reinforce use it to reinforce their prejudices.
3: There seems to have been a rightward lurch in terms of the politics of Western Western democracies. What does that tell us about our societies?
4: I think what it tells us is that we're actually seeing a backlash to what has been a leftward left left wing sort of cultural a move over the last few decades. And that cultural move has been on the basis of immigration, on the basis of rights for women, rights for minorities, a more liberal attitude towards uh, multiculturalism. And what we're now seeing. Is a backlash to that Red is it a, a backlash? backlash is it a backlash,
3: or, or are people saying no more with progressive politics so it 's a case of because no one 's seriously advocating uh, that we take rights away from women, are we? If we take uh, the, the u s and its peculiar um, stance on abortion to one side, no one 's actually arguing to to roll back the movement. Um, movement of progressive politics since the 60s, I think they're saying just no more.
4: Um, Well, no one is really calling for um, you know, openly calling for minorities in the US to have their voting rights restricted either, but that doesn't mean that they're not trying to um, clamp down on rights for minorities to vote in specific states or block them from coming into the US or that we haven't seen an upsurge of racism, you know, since the vote, people saying go back to where you came from, swastikas being painted uh, in towns and cities, Uh, you know, incidents that have propped up on, um, on, on social media. So I'm not saying that people are saying enough. It's more that a lot of people are saying, Well, there's a mixture of stuff. I I think it's, it's dangerous to generalize. I think there's some people who think that political correctness has gone too far. There's other people who think that we need more of an emphasis on economic issues than social and cultural issues, especially in the Rust Belt version. People in the Rust Belt states who voted for Obama, who think that, you know, that Hillary Clinton focused too much on cultural and social issues and LGBT rights and and breaking the glass ceiling for women than they did on their everyday problems. And I think that's a big issue for the left to confront, which is that we cannot, cannot think that cultural issues are going to carry the day.
3: Okay, so cultural issues aren't going to carry the day. So what would that mean specifically for the Labour Party in the UK? In terms of which bits of the UK does it need to turn its attention to? And what would that mean in terms of policy before the next general election?
4: Okay. well, there's three things I would say. Firstly, I think let's not throw the baby out of the bathwater and think somehow the things are going to shit. Actually, um, the demographics and attitudes in the UK and the US are moving in a much more liberal direction. People are becoming much more um, sort of comfortable with uh, multiculturalism. People are becoming more comfortable with openness. Uh, This is, you know, all the polls of younger people show this. It's the older generation, which is still feeling a bit left out. And I think over time, things will move in the positive direction. So let's not get too hasty and think, oh, my God, everything is going to shit. Secondly, I think that we have to think about, the, the, the accept the fact that actually the campaign um, focus that Clinton had when it came to focusing on cultural issues, talking about how Donald Trump was a misogynist, a racist, a bigot, all this kind of stuff. I think we have to accept that actually for a lot of white people, it doesn't really hold much water and they are interested in economic issues. And and, and if, the, if the Democrats or the Labour Party want to succeed, they have to talk about those issues. Uh, uh, and we haven't been doing that enough because we've been focusing on cultural issues um, in the UK and in the US and that's why they lost. And thirdly, I think this is much more for the left to think about. I think we cannot, we have to accept that we cannot accept our agenda or advance our agenda without an alliance with the white working class. And that doesn't just mean that we simply say, oh, you know, we're going to um, do what's best for them, but we're going to ignore them on their racism, or we're going to ignore them, you know, on, on their misogyny and sort of dismiss them as, as a problem as a problem child almost, I think we have to accept the white working class, especially people who are poorer, as allies, accept them that they have differences of opinion on some issues and try and resolve that, and make them allies in which they are comfortable working with um, the younger generation of the left, and only then I think they will be willing to work with us to advance our agenda on cultural issues and i think if we don't do that and they go headlong into an alliance with the right then you know a lot of things that we've fought for over the last 20 30 years in terms of economic justice or social justice that's not going to advance anymore because we need the alliance of the of the white working class otherwise we won't get anywhere
3: when did that split happen within the Labour Party? The Labour Party is supposed to be the party of the workers, the party of the poor, the party of the disadvantaged. Um, mm. Why is it that the Labour Party has forgotten its core root constituency?
4: I think, you know, it, it's partly um, cultural. You, you've got uh, a, a, an increasing and a larger crop of Labour Party people who are, be, who are increasingly middle class they speak a middle class language. they feel like the middle class is where uh, people want to be where that that's the language you should speak that's the future of aspiration et cetera et cetera and I think as a result the the cultural attitudes within the party have changed and then on top of that you know we we're also we've also seen a backlash to Um, the cultural advances on the left of the last few years. So people have been pissed off with increasing immigration, pissed off with multiculturalism. And then as a result, the left, rather than trying to understand those feelings, is trying to just sort of repel them and say, no, these people are bigots, we can't work with them. And I think That attitude has infected the entire Labour Party. And rather than saying, OK, how can we work to resolve those differences, all we're seeing is a constant war between the two sides, between sort of the left and and, and the white working class. And that is not healthy. And I I think so, you know, you've got various reasons. You've got changes within the Labour Party. You've got longer term demographic changes that are happening, which is that, Uh, Cities are becoming much more bigger. Um, They are becoming much more of of the centre of where the Labour Party and the Democrats have their power base now. Uh, And uh, and that's where the white working class is being underrepresented.
3: Is Jeremy Um, Corbyn the right person to spearhead this new Labour message?
4: I think Corbyn... Look, I like Corbyn's message of being an economic populist. I think he's got the, I think he's got the right things to say. In that he, he genuinely cares about people, um, and I think a lot of white working class people see that. But I also think that there are some compromises to be made because the white working class is, uh, on a lot of issues, a lot of people are very culturally conservative, and you have to also. Deal with those attitudes, and I think that while Jeremy Corbyn has a um, sort of a streak of populist economic streak, streak on cultural issues, he's very much a left liberal, and I think that hurts him and doesn't work well with um, a lot of the tabloids. So if you had someone who was a bit more, I think, understanding of that, someone like Clive Lewis or other people within the Labour Party. Um, It might work better. I I just think that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is suited on certain issues and certainly has got uh, uh, the right direction, but I don't think he's the right man for the job.
3: Um, Who is the right person for the job?
4: Uh, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I I think there are various contenders. Clive Lewis. Clive Lewis is one. Uh, Maybe Keir Starmer. Um, Dan it, Jarvis, Yvette it, Cooper.
3: Do, do any of those send uh, a, a sliver of electricity up the leg? Uh,
4: for me, um, you know, to be honest, I've not seen any of them run for run for leadership. Uh, and Yvette Cooper only did that when she started becoming passionate about the plight of refugees. Um, so I think that they all have an opportunity over the next few years to convince the labor party that it needs to go in a different direction that it needs to be headed by someone else ensure the people that they they are up to the task um, you know it can be done so i'm i'm not i'm not saying that the, the labor party is um, out for the count but i do think that some people have to step up to the plate um,
3: lastly i know that you are uh, a keen student of European politics. Uh, the leading candidate to be president of France is the leader of the National Front. So where next for Europe and the European Union? Are we looking potentially at the unravelling of the post-war dream?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Look, after Trump's election, I don't think anyone anything can be ruled out. You know, it, 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 people said that after Brexit, and I didn't really believe it. But now that Trump is elected, you can rule nothing out. Marine Le Pen may may very well get elected in France, and that means that France would come out of the European Union. That's one of her main uh, sort of prop uh, promises. And if it comes out of the European Union, the European Union will collapse. Um, And I think that will not only bring economic havoc but also cultural havoc to Europe. Um, And you never know where things are going to go after that. I mean, you know. we're looking at the, definitely a collapse of the, of the Western sort of P, a post-war, post-war uh, order. Um, and I don't think right now any, any assumptions can hold. Right. I,
3: I, 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 I'm not going to allow you to end on such a downer. You've got to make me feel better about <laughs> 2017 going forward. So end on a positive note. Choose whatever note no. you want.
4: Okay. Well, look, as I said earlier, you cannot throw the baby out of the bathwater. You know, at the end of the day, people, younger people across Europe, across the United States, are much more liberal, much more open than they have ever been in the last 50 years. And what we're seeing is a slow but gradual sea change of attitudes towards immigration, towards refugees, towards economics all the things which are positive for the left, for the left liberals. But the problem is still as a percentage of the voting public, they're a small percentage. And, and as a result, the changes that we're going to see are going to be slow and we're going to face a lot of hurdles on the way. If we, if we play our cards right, we could hold off the, the attacks and we could push our agenda forward. But we have to do politics the right way. Um, and it's all possible. I mean, Obama showed the way that you can stitch a winning coalition, um, and there needs to be some positive leadership out of the left over the next few years, and, and I think if there is, then um, we can come back stronger.
3: Sonny Handel, thank
0: you for being
3: and positive in very troubling times. Thanks Royfield, good to speak to you as always. British Berliner Alice Thwaite is the founder and editor of the Echo Chamber. The Echo Chamber implores us to listen to and to read the opinions of others outside of our ideological comfort zone. Alice, how comfortable are you at the moment?
5: So I, I'm i definitely not one of those people who was completely shocked when Trump was elected. Um, if, you, if you spend a lot of time on, on some of the subreddits and also on 4chan, you'll realize that a lot of Trump supporters were encouraged not to tell their views to what they call the MSM, which stands for mainstream media. Um kind of made me think that maybe the polls this time around weren't going to be as um telling as perhaps they have in previous elections, but also that's um because of uh previous precedent for polls over the last four years having said that how comfortable am I as a as a liberal and a progressive again I think there's a lot to be incredibly um thankful for in our current political system Um, I don't see that there's any way that Trump will turn into a fascist dictator in the sense that he won't allow a re-election or even that he'll rig uh, an election in the next four years um so that will definitely happen which will mean that the country as a whole will have the opportunity to out him, what's more, he won't be able to serve more than eight years anyway. But, but isn't
3: the point of, of Trump that, um, it's, it, if nothing else, it's the language that he uses to say things like all Mexicans are rapists, to say that African-Americans live in, in squalor, etc., is that there is absolutely no nuance so it does then lead to a situation whereby we have swastikas being daubed on, on buildings, churches being burned down in America. No, this is not happening through every town in every state of the United States. But the the temperature has definitely turned in in terms of civil discourse and polite uh, discourse in terms of understanding and, and, and how people relate to people who are not of the same ethnicity or yeah. of the same uh, political thought or religion yeah. of um, the majority.
5: I think that's very true. So um, I did an election special last um, last week and um, it, it is very, very clear that a lot of Trump's supporters, and I put supporters, if you could see me in quotation marks, are um, very racist. I, I don't think that they're particularly anti-feminist as a whole. And I think that's what a lot of people are quite shocked by is the fact that you know, the majority of white women voted for Trump, um, when Hillary Clinton's campaign was pretty much all about feminism. But I would say that they definitely are very racist. I think the part that, and and this is, this is then where we need to discuss it is, is Trump as racist as his supporters? Um, And that's where I would then kind of go, I don't, you know, he's definitely said some appalling things, and also I have to say that, you know, I'm a I'm white woman, so it's, it's it's very difficult for me to kind of comment too much on this. um But in the past, he's been quite liberal, um and there have also been groups, especially coming out from the alt right, who are saying we don't actually think that Trump's going to do this for us in the same way that we want. So white supremacists are kind of going, actually, we don't think that Trump's the leader in this kind of area. So. A bit like Brexit, there was a huge backlash when a lot of people started screaming out racist abuse on the streets and it seemed like a very, very different country. Those kind of reports have kind of died down now. And I don't think it's because they've been normalized. I think that there's a lot of people out there who are very conscious of um, racism um, and being anti-religious sentiment, all these type of things. And I think we would continue to call that out. Um, if we were experiencing it. And I think the same thing is probably happening in America right now, albeit on a much larger scale because Americans do tend to be a little bit more um, extreme, let's put it that way, um, than their European counterparts. I think... You
3: came. You came on the show about two, three weeks ago, specifically with the angle of uh, communication, and then how technology and new media has helped to separate us from people that have diverging views. Um, with the election of President-elect Trump, um, what does his election tell us, specifically? about the role that the media has played in uh, the 2016 uh, election race?
5: Wow. Um, there's a couple of points. Um, the first is, is, is the difference between the media now and a week ago. There are all sorts of editorials coming out at the moment which are explanations for why Trump um, came into power. And you're sitting there reading it, thinking this is just a load of rubbish, because if you really believed this, then you'd have been printing this a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks ago. Um, so I think that the way that they're handling it now is is pretty is is, is bad. And it's not to say that um, journalists, there are individual journalists who are still doing a great job. But those kind of editorials are making it onto my social feeds and into our social media monitoring the way that they weren't before. Um I think that um, the idea of an echo chamber is now something that a lot of people are talking about, um, which I think is a good thing. Um, It would have been nice if it wasn't this um, trigger that that made a lot more people think about it. I think that the pressure on Facebook to evaluate whether or not it is a technology or a media company is going to be huge. I also think that the media has a huge responsibility to sit down to think about to what extent did we silence Trump supporters um, and to what extent do we silence a lot of values uh, that exist across the spectrum of political thoughts because it's so much more important to have these conversations out in the open because if you don't have the conversations out in the open and you don't listen to people and you don't engage with what they're saying, then there's absolutely no way come election day that those people are going to kind of vote in a reasonable manner or indeed you can vote in a reasonable manner as well. So I think those are three points. I don't necessarily know what to do next, um, but they're definitely three to to think about.
3: Um, It's interesting you talked about having conversations out in the open. Um, If we were to believe the data... There is a small but significant proportion of Americans who weren 't happy to be honest and say that we 're going to vote for Trump, so is it possible if you have a certain uh, amount of people who are you know closet Trump supporters because they obviously realize there is some social anxiety and they were and they were obviously voting for him in spite of a lot of things that he said, not necessarily because um can can we honestly have conversations in the open
5: um i think i i mean i i managed to have a lot of conversations with with these people and um a kind of conversation is springing to mind right now where i was talking to um a black muslim woman and she was saying that if she was in america right now she would be voting for trump um and and i think that it depends on why she just um she she cited the establishment reason so she was saying the way that clinton has behaved part of the clinton foundation um she doesn't know how clinton makes her money um she doesn't know where her allegiances lie um and she just saw her as a much more dangerous president than someone like trump um And a lot of Latinas and Hispanics have come out and said the same thing. And then there was that article which went a bit viral on Medium as well, which was um, a kind of a a similar Muslim immigrant saying that she voted Trump for these anti-establishment reasons. Um, And I think that it is very easy to listen. It's. It's harder to listen and to listen to it in entirety without disagreeing with it immediately. But it is very easy to listen and kind of internalise it and think about why people are saying the things they're saying and then kind of come back with a better liberal manifesto. Um, I think that the liberal manifesto, if you again, that's in quotation marks, has kind of failed a lot of people right now because they do understand that liberals talk about equality, but they see this huge um, gap in terms of pay. Um, in terms of which communities seem to be reaping the most wealth, in terms of the fact that the city got a lot of tax breaks in 2008, but these small factories aren't getting anything. Um, equality needs to be spoken about on that level, as well as the level that we always like to talk about. And I do fundamentally agree with that, you know, whether or not you're black, white, Asian, um, whichever, you know, wherever you're from, then you should have equal each- rights. You should be open to the same... Um, opportunities and shouldn't have these microaggressions um, kind of towards I, you. So, I, I think on.
3: I think it's interesting what you're saying, and I, and I think in part I actually disagree. I think okay that in part um, that Trump vote is fueled by people who do not think that minorities have a legitimate right to have a fair slice of the cake, whatever that minority is. That Underlying this, not for all people that voted for Trump, I wouldn't go that far, but underlying it is a sense of cultural identity or cultural separateness to say that we have these people who are trying to take um, more, whatever more actually means, whether it's jobs, money, positions, etc. And this is actually our country. So it's not a case of being saying that necessarily, though there is a very large element of anti-elite sentiment, it's just a case of you people or those people are not us. And why should they be given um, what, you know, seen seen as a fair crack of the whip? This is our country. America is is a white country. When America was great, America looked and felt very different than what it feels now.
5: Yeah, I mean, that that, that opinion definitely definitely exists. And when you hear an opinion like that, and um, a friend of mine, Yoshi Herman, took a video of Trump supporters on the night of the election. They came out with very much that sentiment as well. When you hear that, then you've just got to go, you know, <laughs> there's, there's nothing really that we can... We can argue with each other. And I mean, I just think that opinion's wrong. Um, but that's very much a value opinion. We, we, we're kind of discussing when it comes to values. Um, I think that those people, though, when you look at the, the tiny percentage, well, you know, the number of electoral seats or the percentage that it was in the popular votes and everything like that. It was very close. So those aren't necessarily the people that um, I mean, we sh- should be worried about them. But those aren't the people who swung the election necessarily. Um, the people that swung the election were people who aren't necessarily completely racist in the sense that they believe that our America is a white supreme America. They're not sitting on the alt-right. They're not these people. You, they're, they're, they're women who um, potentially are, again, I disagree with this, but they are pro-life. But for that, that is also a feminist um a feminist um doctrine for them they have a different type of feminism than one that hillary clinton was pushing so yes they certainly do exist and it, it's quite horrific when you when you hear about these people because they do just kind of contradict exactly what what liberal values are but there are also plenty of people who voted for trump who are you know are very much open to a liberal and progressive um form of discourse and that just simply weren't spoken to by the clinton campaign. And they weren't spoken to by the Brexit campaign. And I think that's because um, both those campaigns were slightly complacent in the fact that they were just kind of taking um, liberal values for granted. And then they um, were quite patronising as well in terms of why you would think a different way. And they'd almost silenced those opinions. So for me, I completely agree with you that those people exist. But I don't think that those are the people who we need to be listening to and necessarily reaching out to reaching out so we should listen to it because we should know it exists and we should try and and um and convince them around to a, a different point of view but those aren't the people that that won the election for trump ultimately um it's that you know 10 15 20 percent of people who um watch their factories being shut down watch nothing like nothing being done about it learned about clinton's um kind of involvement in the clinton foundation and and, and that's That's been the overwhelming message from those critical swing voters.
3: Is one of the lessons we can draw from this that the Republican echo chamber is just bigger than the Democratic echo chamber? And if so, um, what does the future hold?
1: Um,
5: I don't know about that. I think that um, both are huge. I think that the Republican echo chamber, though, is... um, is, um, Because when you spend time on Infowars or you spend time on Breitbart, it's very clear that they know what CNN is is talking about. Um, They keep their eye on CNN. They keep their eye on the BBC. They keep their eye on all of these different outlets because they consider them to be MSM, the mainstream media that you can't get away from. Um, Whereas when it comes to uh, Democrats or a liberal echo chamber, we're quite often oblivious to um, the methods of communication that these other people are using. Um, so I would say that, um, the Republicans definitely are in an echo chamber, but they are at least, I mean, I could be, I could be wrong here, but they they are at least exposed to what the major news channels are saying. And then they go out of their way to find a different discourse. So an anti-establishment discourse, whereas um, people sitting on the democratic side perhaps aren't quite as aware of, or don't feel the need to kind of go outside of their echo chamber at the moment, because it's still very much. Kind of the New York Times, the uh, the Washington um, uh, Street Post, all these all these type of publications. that is just an opinion by the way that's that's I've got no data to 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 back that up at the no time. no
3: no we th- this is if if anything two thousand and told us two thousand and six is is telling us that it's all about opinion, screw data, screw facts so we, we, we're gonna we're gonna take that as red alice
5: <laughs> Actually, yeah, and that's that's the message we're fighting for right <laughs> yeah. yeah um
3: Everybody I'm speaking to today, I'm saying we're not gonna end on on a downer. So this is your this is your two or three minutes to end on a positive note so as progressive and liberals can uh, puff our chests out and look forward to a rosy two thousand seventeen onwards.
5: Ooh, okay. Um so something something um you spoke about is the fact that it can it can be much worse than it is now. I mean you mentioned I'm in Berlin at the moment. Um I went to the Soviet prison yesterday and oh, my God, it can get worse than it is right now. We still have the ability to voice our anxieties. We have the ability to protest. We have the ability to access pieces of information. We're not all um, kind of going to get shipped off into a van at any last um get shipped off in the ban and taken to a prison for no good reason those things are going on in the world right now so you look at um asia in particular i mean thailand's the lise majeste laws and the death of the king is kind of a bit worrying there so i mean that's that's again something to be very much thankful for and to really think how great is it that we still live in a country that has these values and if we do start saying oh you know this is the worst it's going to get you know if marine le pen gets elected in the next year or so we're going to feel that it can actually get a lot worse. So bear in mind that right now we have a great position. We have a great um, democratic society um, would be my number one takeaway from this. Um, the second one is the fact that now people are kind of becoming a little less complacent about what their liberal values are. And I think that we were complacent in talking about things like equality, um talking about you know just equal rights in general people had lost track about what necessarily that meant and they'd also started talking a little bit more about um different words as opposed to actions um words are so 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 powerful don't get me wrong there but it's really about time that we started thinking okay well what are the actions that we believe to be hate speech what do we want to make sure doesn't happen and how do we then still learn about other people's um of you and don't silence them as a result of that. Um, and I think that's something that might happen in the next couple of months. It's definitely something that I'm seeing a lot more people asking me for. Um, so those are two parts there. It's just that it's going to strengthen what liberals believe in. It's going to be strengthened, that kind of discussion about what values are. And also the other point is, you know, we're not in Thailand, we're not in the Philippines. Um, it could get a lot worse worse we're never ever going to let it get there um so those are my two two points to end on
3: thank you sister thank you for reaffirming my innate uh belief that um things can't get any worse because fundamentally human beings are good and decent things and that we have the interests of our fellow humanity kind of at heart over selfish venal um issues to do with what exactly we need and want at, at any one point so thank you for reaffirming my faith in humanity sister onwards and upwards from 2017 onwards
5: yes i yeah let's uh let's have a good let's hope that david bowie doesn't die again in 2017
3: as well <laughs> <laughs> that's very good well done really. <laughs> Natasha Chalice is a producer of ITV's The Agenda and has been for the last four years. Our other credits include 10 o'clock live for Channel 4 Dispatches and a stint at The Beeb. Natasha, how are you?
1: Very well. How are you, Rochelle?
3: Well, as I've been saying to everybody, I'm still shattered. I'm absolutely shattered and, shattered and broke. My liberal sensibilities have been shaken to the core. Now... Um, if I was a typical Trump supporter, I'd probably say that you are part of the mainstream media. Um, is that a title that you can wear?
1: Um, probably, actually. I think, I think in this day and age, people can get their news and their information from so many different places. And I think traditional political television programmes probably do place the type of programmes that I work on as mainstream media. I would say I make an effort to take on board other opinions and reach out to some of the stuff that's going on at the fringes, but it's hard work and it's certainly. Not the way we have we have worked traditionally in the type of programs that I make, but I think that probably is a fairly fairly accurate description of me. Yeah. If we
3: if we deal with Donald Trump first, as opposed to Brexit, specifically looking at U.S. media, U.S. media seems to become much more polarized. In that, yes, you have the mainstream media in inverted commas, but then you have your Breitbart's, you have your Fox News's, you have your MSNBC so it's much more kind of partisan why do you think um, that Americans and increasingly Brits but let's say Americans their attention has been taken away from let's say more mainstream media and more niche bits are punditry and news gathering are much more coming to the fore
1: Yeah I, th- I mean I think it's really interesting actually that the programme that I'm working on at the moment is Preston on Sunday where we do quite a lot of work looking at Twitter and Facebook and and responses and reactions things and I think what's been really interesting looking at that world is that it's actually quite hard to go out and find opinion that's different to your own because you realise that so many of the people you follow and you are friends with reflect back to you what what you already think or what you've already read, and actually sort of trying to find new ways to tap into different types of information um, has has been really quite hard work. It's had to be something that we've really worked towards. But I do think that you know, in terms of why people find it appealing to 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 look to different information that they can get on Facebook or Twitter, which reinforces their own opinion, is is. Partly because I think the traditional news media in terms of TV and newspapers is very much seen as part of the problem by a lot of people who voted for Trump and presumably voted for Brexit too. So
3: how is it part of the problem, um, and I'm I'm just playing devil's advocate here, how is it part of the problem if traditionally um, the liberal media introduces an issue and has two antagonists to discuss it surely that is yeah uh,
1: of course but i think that what people are looking for is something that resonates harder than what we've done or 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 resonates more forcefully than what we've done traditionally and my assumption and this is you know not necessarily my experience because i don't do a lot of work out on the ground you know i've got a friend who went out and did box pops all the way through the brexit referendum and you know would come back and say people have got very different experiences of life and actually as a sort of as a tv producer who lives in london and spends their time with other people like me i think um you have to really work to try and reach out to appeal to different types of voices that that they are beginning to find in other places that you know there isn't a monopoly on how you get your information anymore and actually people are more attracted to maybe things which are more extreme but certainly things which resonate better with them and clearer with them because it's made by people like like them and people who who reflect their views back to them maybe a bit more and i think that Certainly of the stuff that we did, we looked at this weekend on Pesson on Sunday um, in terms of the sort of divisions between Clinton voters and, and Trump voters. And I'm sure you know this much better than me, but the sort of rural urban split is much, much, much bigger. And a couple of the pieces that I read over the last few days really, really sort of brought home to me that presumably quite a lot of people outside the urban centers in America just think that. You know, news channels and newspapers are written by people who are not like them and have no understanding of the lives they're living and and the you know the hardships they're facing. In a way that they felt that Donald Trump answered answered that.
3: Is it that people want their views not only reinforced but also they want to be entertained? Is there an argument for saying? That listening to the Today program, yeah, that's kind of great. All the pest and show that you do, um, not, not knocking you uh, individually here is kind of fantastic, yeah, yeah. But Breitbart, bloody hell, it's a rip roaring read. Mm. Is it is it a case that information is becoming information, which is becoming entertainment, and oh. and kind of and and, and, and also. It gets you to engage on a visceral level, that stuff. Mm. That it's not yeah, about... I was, rec- I, Go on.
1: Yeah. I was, was going to say, I, I think it's not so much about entertainment because I think what people really don't like at the moment is a sort of stony idea of, you know, what, what we were talking about earlier was, you know, being presented with on the one hand and on the other hand. And I think that no longer feels true to people it's not and i th- i think i think a sort of more polemical approach to you know information or the news feels much more compelling to people because you know they're not dumb they know that people come from a particular perspective and i think what we've done traditionally a, a more neutral uh, nuanced approach to the news is becoming less attractive to people because they don't buy it and because it doesn't reflect the full reality of the situation. But a balance sort of on the one hand and on the other hand doesn't reflect on, you know, the third finger, fourth finger, fifth finger. And it's just, it's not sort of granular or crunchy enough. It's too it's too broad brush. And I think, you know, a lot of traditional media is done in you know an entertaining way, but a different type of entertaining way. So you know the little bit where they'll have a light-hearted chuckle on you know um, on the today programme about Strictly Come Dancing or something. So I think there is sort of elements of it which is entertaining, but I think that people, I think people feel you know there are a lot of people out there who feel quite angry and they they prefer that sort of polemical visceral, as you said, sort of response to the world fed at them, rather than something which feels a bit more traditional and maybe a bit more in hock with politicians and the establishment and the way things have always been and that the sort of the new world order, the new sort of the new media, new approaches to treating stories feels more exciting and refreshing to them, potentially.
3: One of the things which I really noticed about the American election was that um, fact-checking sites um, really just went to town on Donald Trump, but it didn't really Mm. seem to matter because we're almost living in a kind of a post-information age where people don't care about facts and stats. Mm. All they they care about is their gut. But Mm. running alongside that was very struck by the fact that whether it was Brexit or whether it was Trump, when you have um, a traditional media programme and somebody has blatantly mm. said, let's say, a falsehood, let's not say that, necessarily say that they're lying, that liberal forward slash traditional media has a problem um, actually confronting that person and saying, what you have said is factually incorrect.
1: I think I would take issue with that, actually, because I think there was a lot of attempts to do that during... The referen- during the EU referendum. And I think that certainly of the programmes that I worked on, I remember presenters pushing politicians about the leave campaigners about the money that was going to go to the NHS. And it was sort of again and again, you know, some attempts to put into real facts and figures what the economic benefits of leaving the EU would be. And I think the thing is, politicians in this day and age are so well practiced at not answering the question. But, you know, Natasha,
3: I hear that completely. And to give um, Brexiteers uh, the benefit of the doubt, the. Though, let's say, 99 economists might say that, of course, it's in the UK's um, economic interest to stay within a single market, whether you want to call it the European Union or not, but stay within a single market, um, and there's only one that will say that it absolutely isn't, that, that that's one thing. But that's still an opinion. But when somebody like Donald Trump has said something like all Mexicans are rapists which is obviously factually not the case, it's not mm. an opinion there's no way that 120 million people can all be rapists um, mm. he didn't get called out on those things so we're not talking about some kind of uh, supposition about, about the future, about economic good times mm. or bad but absolutely something which you can categorically say that what you have said is false or how can you say that And Mm. and, and, and I and and, and for me, this is where traditional liberal media has kind of kind of fallen down. This is not to say Mm. that the concerns of your average Trump voter aren't valid, and I'm not saying that you know know no one's saying that they are all that they are racist or, or or misogynist, but there are there are absolutely points and certain things were said, which he could have been called out on. And it seemed to me that it was only towards the end of the campaign, after he was bashing um, the media, the mainstream media, that then people started to say, well, actually, this or that um, is actually factually, factually incorrect. Yeah. But, but,
1: but, I mean, I mean I, I, yeah. Yeah, I two yeah. points to that. One is, I wish I'd had the opportunity to work on a programme where my presenter was interviewing Donald Trump. Uh, which unfortunately I never have. But, you know, I I think that the British media, I can't really answer for the American media, but I think the British media would have picked him up on all Mexicans are rapists and would have made that a theme of the campaign. But I think the second point I'd like to make is that I think people didn't take him seriously. I I don't think anybody took him seriously. So in a way, it was like he was this joke figure and he was this guy who was like, so ridiculous with his stupid hair and his reality TV programme and he w- wasn't going to win because, you know, how could he possibly win? And I think that, you know, the, the sort of the ups and downs of whether he was going to win or not of, you know, occasionally every now and then went, oh, maybe hang on, he's getting close in the polls, but nobody really believed he was going to win. And so they didn't take him, you know, my, my, my guess is that they can take him seriously enough to take him to pieces, but is, it shouldn't that... have been that difficult.
3: Does that maybe underpin another kind of relative failure of mainstream media in that there is an inherent intellectual snobbery. That because this mm. man didn't look mm. let alone sound like us, yeah. he was dismissed.
1: I think I think I think that is you know, again, I think that that is a problem that we are all, you know, generally most people who work in the media are middle class you know urban dwellers relatively well paid relative job security who meet other people like them and the sort of shock amongst other journalists I know after Brexit was extreme and I think there was a real there is a real division both here and in the US in terms of being able to understand the other side's point of view and I think you know, I think I think that is definitely emphasized, as we discussed with, you know, Facebook and Twitter and people having their views reinforced by them the whole time. But I think, you know, plenty of people I knew during the Brexit debate hadn't met another person who was going to vote the other way. And a, a friend of mine said to me at one point, if only all those people who voted Brexit had listened to the Today programme, then they would have known not to vote to leave. And I just thought that was just a complete misunderstanding of what the vote was about and the different kinds of lives people lead in the country.
3: Very true. Very true. Now, before you go, right, because I've been saying this to everybody I've been speaking to today, you need to end on an absolutely positive note, because 2017 <laughs> and onwards has to get better. So here's your here is your, here's your time, Nishasa Chalice. Please tell me, okay. convince me that things will get better, and then please tell me why.
1: Okay, well, I, I think the first thing I'd say is, you know, this, this idea that Donald Trump is not going to do all the things that he said he was going to do during the campaign. It is it's is a, a fence, little not a wall. sort of <laughs> exactly it's a fence not a wall, and maybe Muslims won't be banned from the U.S. Uh, is it, is making me feel like an incy little bit better about 2017. And I think the other sort of the secondary thing is the hope that we can harness social media as a sort of power for good and a way of connecting people, exposing people to different opinions and potentially allowing people to have a voice which they feel is disconnected from their elected representatives that somebody has to invent a a new form of dialogue between the governors and the governed um, on both sides of the Atlantic I would say and I think that will hopefully give people a sense of empowerment which I feel they're lacking at the moment.
3: John Elegy is not only a Mid-Atlantic pundit, but he's also the editor of the new states and sister site Metric. John spent the end of the 2016 election travelling around America, testing its pulse. Um, John? Hello. Where did you go and why?
6: Oh, we went all over. We did uh, 17 states in two weeks, which is, no, that's quite a lot of states. That's pretty impressive. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, a couple of those, we, we, we really weren't in very long. And we got—we literally just kind of drove through and maybe stopped for a cup of coffee. But we, we
3: spent... Was that Rhode s- Island? Uh,
6: yeah, we, we, it took us about an hour to get across Rhode Island. Providence <laughs> looks very nice. Probably the quickest was Delaware, where it, it takes literally about 15 minutes to get across Delaware on the interstate. And they've very cleverly set up the tolls in a confusing way so you can accidentally end up owing them money. Um which, are, which we, we read as a deliberate attempt to, to take revenge for the fact that no one ever visits Delaware. Um, but, yeah, we, we, went, we went all over. We went across New England. Um, we probably spent most time in, in the swing states of the Rust Belt, actually, in Pennsylvania and Ohio, uh, is where we spent the longest
3: period. What were your immediate kind of takeaways from, let's say, Rust Belt country? What was that America like
6: it was the version of America that was clearly fantastic about 100 years ago. It's um, It actually reminded me very much of the north of England. You've got all these sort of uh, beautiful cities with these sort of great downtowns full of skyscrapers and, and sort of Gilded Age office blocks. Um, and there's just nothing there anymore because global economy has moved on the u.s manufacturing industry particularly its car manufacturing industry is is not what it was so you've got these places that have lost as much as half of their population in the last 50 years um and they're just they're just standing empty obviously i'm generalizing wildly but anyone with with ambitions moves out and goes to one of the big cities or moves to the coast Um, so i think there's a lot of frustration and uh resentment of that sense of being of having been left behind by the global economy because it's not just a matter of being of being at the sharp end it's the knowledge of something having been lost i think
3: so you spent time with both campaigns on the ground could you give us a sense of the kind of innate difference whether you're in new england or within the rust belt you know how was the republican ground ground game and how was the democratic ground game
6: I mean, I wouldn't want to generalize too much from our experiences because we only visited a couple of campaign offices. Because uh, it, it was, to be honest, it was also a vacation as well as a, as well as a work trip. Um, but in the places we did go, the very clear difference was the Democrats were much more professionalized. So the. Uh, we went to we went to the campaign offices in a town called Scranton in Pennsylvania, which is um, it was the birthplace of Joe Biden. It's where where Hillary Clinton's dad grew up, is buried. Um, and the Democrats there were clearly they were running it almost like a business. So uh, so there um, it was, you know, it was an office with computers. Everyone was very heads down and they had a very clearly assigned list of tasks Um and, yeah, it was just entirely professionalised. They had a job to do. They were getting on with it. The Republican campaign was much, uh, much, much scrappier. It was just a few slightly um, slightly eccentric old people in a disused community hall um, talking about revolution and marching on Washington. Um, and I can totally see why those guys felt they were at the at the forefront of a, a grassroots movement because... That's what it looked like compared to the Democrats. That clearly did look the, the, the Democrat campaign office clearly did look like the Washington machine had come to town to get a job done, whereas the Republican campaign was obviously sort of a few a, a few locals who just really liked Donald Trump. Um, you know, in, in a normal year, you perhaps put your money on the on the more professional outfit, but clearly things did go that way in in the event.
3: Are we looking at the end of? traditional political campaigns you know you talked about um, this kind of very homespun effort which felt I suppose very human and then what you had spewing out of um, Trump HQ was his stream of consciousness from from his Twitter feed so you didn't need sophisticated polling um, that was getting column inches and immediate airtime. Uh, so are we looking at really kind of post-politics in terms of organisation and really it's about how you engage on an emotional level and then that gets people kind of animated and activated maybe.
6: I don't know. I think there's a danger of reading too much into that. I think... Um, I, I just don't know how much it's transferable. I mean, I think if, if Trump had been a normal candidate, yeah. then... Um, the professionalisation probably would have been an advantage. Like There was a lot of talk in the days leading up to the election that one of the things that worked in the Democrats' favour was they had a much better get-out-the-vote operation. Like They knew who they needed to get to, they knew at what time of day to drag them down to the polls and so on. And that's generally thought to be worth a couple of percentage points. Um, I, I think, you know, if if the Republicans had also had that operation, then I think they, they um, Trump would have... Trump would have uh, got more votes I mean he did still lose the popular vote it's just he happened to win the states he needed to assemble an electoral college majority so I I think I I don't think the professionalisation of politics is going to go away because it does generally speaking work to the advantage of the people who do it Um, but clearly there is something something else of the anti-establishment tone of, of not only the Trump campaign but so much politics the world over at the moment um it was clearly a to the counterweight to that.
3: Where do you see American politics going forward? You know, what does this tell us about the midterms in 2018 uh, before we even get to 2020? If this has happened in 2016, uh, what happens next?
6: Oh, I mean, I think making political predictions is always a mugs game, but given that as late as... 10pm uh, you know, Eastern on Tuesday night everyone still, the consensus was still that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag I think I'm particularly wary of making uh, making predictions, it's just so unknowable isn't it because
3: it, Do you still have 5.38 bookmarked on your browser?
6: No, they've broken my heart now so, I mean <laughs> But also, I mean, like, the, I, I think one of the one of the reasons it is so difficult to make predictions about the future is that the whole U.S. polling industry has now just been undermined by the fact that they they kind of called this one wrong. <laughs> they called this one very wrong indeed. Um, so, trying to predict what the world is going to be like two years hence, when even in the run-up to those midterms, we won't know whether we can trust the polls. I think it's it's incredibly difficult to know how. And, and, you know, it's so unpredictable that Donald Trump has never held political office before. He's got a lot of um, uh, very crazy, very right-wing, you know, borderline fascists in his team. So we just don't know how he's going to act in government. Um, And therefore we don't know if there will be a backlash we don't know if the the, the voter suppression that, that was uh, a factor in the elections is going to be ramped up um it's it really could go in a in, in so many different directions I'm, I'm struggling to find anything interesting because i'm sure she shell-shocked by the whole thing to be honest
3: <laughs> all right before you go we have we have to end on on an up note because I refuse to be completely, utterly browbeaten by 2016. And you, John Elledge, are going to provide me with that. So, fill me. And I know I'm asking the wrong person. Because you like you really to be are. A, a curmudgeon. Right?
6: God, but even though things are good, I'm in a bad mood. I mean, how am I <laughs> going to come up with something? The world is literally burning around us. How am I going to come up with a happy ending here?
3: Yeah. All right. So, um, let, let, let's start with bad stuff. Uh, Marine Le Pen, President of France next year.
6: I, I, yeah, I think that might happen. I mean, um, I, I really don't know vast amounts about French politics, and obviously they have the the runoff system, in which the the top two candidates do a second election. So it, that that did prevent um, Marine Le Pen's father from becoming president in two thousand and two because the left came out and voted for the conservative Jacques Chirac. Um, but I, if I had to put money on it, I think I would probably put money on Marine Le Pen winning because it does just seem to be the the way the world is going at the moment is uh, there are a lot of people voting for quite extreme candidates right now all
3: right so so that that that's bad right that's Um, the bad news all right so um, if she becomes president of France how long is the European Union going to last I
6: mean if 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 she were to win she has been talking about Frexit um, which is a whole different I mean at that point it really is difficult to see how the survives Um, the EU can survive the departure of the United Kingdom I don't think it could survive the departure of France so it it is possible that in a couple of years time we could have waved goodbye to both the European Union and and to NATO at which point the Western Alliance is basically dead Um, I'm really struggling to come up with some good news here Um, it's nearly Christmas I'm looking forward to Christmas
3: (laughs) Please tell me that whatever happens, the sun will always rise in the east.
6: Well, that depends. I mean, if we have a, nu- if we have a nuclear war followed by a nuclear winter, then who knows? So <laughs> can we even rely on that anymore?
3: John Eldridge, thank you for, as always, being a ray of sunshine on untroubled waters. There you go, to mix my metaphors spectacularly. Anytime. Thanks a lot, mate. I hope you found this Mid-Atlantic special enjoyable. I don't normally say this, but please, I need you to go onto iTunes and please write us that iTunes review. It's incredibly important for me to get the message of Mid-Atlantic out there. Also, if you would like to uh, comment or to contribute to the show, you can send me an email at royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. On Twitter, you can find us where we are at Mid Atlantic Show. And of course, the website is Mid.
5: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers.